This week's date papers from 1989 were released. John Bowman, broadcaster and historian, has been reading through them, focusing on Anglo-Irish relations and looking at how they reflect the relationship between Charles Hawhey and Margaret Thatcher. They'd both come into power 10 years before, in 1979, and had had a bumpy relationship in their many meetings since then. They were not to know it, but 1989 was to be Thatcher's last year as Conservative leader and and Prime Minister. John, you're very welcome. Tell me about 1989 in terms of Anglo-Irish relations. Well, the first point to be made, I suppose, is that it was a relatively uh, slow year and not a very eventful year because uh, there was no summit, for instance, uh, Thatcher uh, didn't want one and she generally wanted to keep it all a bit under the radar. She'd given up on Northern Ireland, about which she had not learnt an awful lot, despite being there for 10 years and in charge of British policy. Uh, she was kind of all over the place on Northern Ireland, really, if you look at the total big picture. Um, and her relationship with Charles Hockey was better than it had been because he had sent her a stinker of a letter uh, in the previous year, saying he was just fed up with her presumption of knowing more than he did about the issue, as if it meant more to her. He was pointing out that it meant more to his state than it even did to the British state. Um, and he was prompted to do that by Richard Ryan, who was the one of the key men uh, in gathering intelligence on British policy in our London embassy. And Richard Ryan wrote to wrote to, um, actually he wrote to the Department of Foreign Affairs, but it was absolutely intended for Charlie's eyes and uh, was written in a way for him to pick up on, which he Mm -hmm. did. Uh, And in the previous year, he had written Thatcher this letter, which is very important and where he said that he was just pissed off by, he didn't use that word, but he he did say he was was tired of being ballyragged by her at at their summit meetings and so on. And the next one was one she took more seriously, uh, and she kind of woke up to the fact that he he was there. He was really quite annoyed with, with the way she was approaching it. And he was trying to educate her on the complexity of Northern Ireland and what it meant to the Irish government uh, in Dublin. Now, of course, the point, the key point about, about Hawhey himself is that he was playing all of this out on a wicket, not, not only not of his making, but it was the, it was the Hillsborough Agreement, mm-hmm. which he had described as partitionist, and as treasonable, they were his first cold verdicts. And he began rowing back by very small increments, even within seven or eight days, because he knew that if he ever came back into power, it might well be the wicket he'd be batting on. And so, so it was. And what must have really surprised him, although this is not the sort of detail one gets in the records, what must have surprised him is just how well prepared that wicket was by the Irish players and the diplomats and the people in the Taoiseach's department, all of whom were Fitzgerald appointees. OK, uh, so we have a, a clip, I believe. Um... Yeah, well, well, OK, so he meets, he, he, he met Margaret Thatcher for less than an hour. I, I actually, in the Irish Times piece, I said it, they met for two 30 minutes. When, he, when Charlie Hawhey talks to Tommy Gorman on RT News, he, he, Tommy says to him, you, you met the... You, you met for 15 or 20 minutes with the British Prime Minister. Yeah. So it was it was always put down as half an hour because it was in the margins of the European Union summits. Um, but it was probably less than an hour. And much of that talk, or at least a higher proportion than usual, was about Europe, which was one of Margaret Thatcher's preoccupations. And in the December summit, uh, the key big point about it was 
that the Berlin Wall had just fallen. It was all the talk at the EU summit, you can imagine, the heads of state in, in Europe, the, the buzz was around Germany. And the Dermot Nally's note of that meeting between Thatcher and Hohe is that it, Thatcher is complaining about it, but the whole issue is becoming more and more Germanic. Coal was like a bulldozer. Okay. And this is what she also was, because she was against German reunification. I think you're going much too fast, much too fast. You have to take these things step by step and handle them very wisely. Uh, they say now that they want a genuine democracy in East Germany. It's one thing to say it, but you really have to apply yourself to build it. And indeed, when Charles Hohe was then asked about German unity, he gave a rather predictable and very Irish reply. There is a clear uh, statement of principle by all concerned uh, that uh, the question of German unification, reunification, is primarily a matter uh, for it to be settled by the German people in accordance with principles of self-determination. What else it's a would very you say? Different views. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a sort of an Irish uh, Orthodox view. Yeah. Uh, he would expect it and to apply it in the Irish case, in the Irish case as well. When they did get talking about uh, Northern Ireland at these summits, the Birmingham case, Birmingham Six case, was very important, a major issue during 1989 not least because the Guildford Four had been released that um, in January, February. And it was, it was really was a major issue. He was being asked, how he was being asked many questions in the Dáil about the Birmingham Six. And he also was receiving mail from members of the Birmingham Six asking him why he wasn't taking it to Strasbourg. And he, was, uh, he, he thought that diplomacy was the better route. Uh, the British, by the way, were very determined that these issues, the Maguire, Birmingham and Guildford cases, would not be conflated. Mm-hmm. They were very, very uh, keen on that. One can see why. Probably guilty consciences about all of them. Uh, the Irish would see it all as being of a piece. There were no surprises, I think, in Ireland by this stage that uh, the, 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 the way the Guildford Four had emerged uh, and, and how they'd come out. And the, there was impatience in, in Ireland about this. And um, when the Douglas Heard now is trying to take, he was the, by then the Home Secretary, and he was trying to take oxygen out of the, um, the these cases. It was his responsibility to refer them to the Court of Appeal. Okay. And he'd then been succeeded by Tom King. And this was his response to the whole issue. Until there is something new, I'm quite clear that my successor, uh, indeed he's already uh, said so in Parliament, uh, well, not that he won't see grounds for referring it back. Now, if there was something new appeared, which had not been before the Court of Appeal on either its two hearings of the matter, well, that creates a different situation which he would take account of. I mean, Hurd is really taking the oxygen out of that and he's saying uh, that it's all... Really, he sounds a bit bored by it, really, and he's under too much pressure about it. But uh, he, he, now he, he the, the British also, of course, wanted to insist that the it would be for the Court of Appeal to decide. The question of putting it before them was a political issue, but there would be no politics in the verdict on the merits of the case. It would go straight to the Court of Appeal and would be a matter of law and not of politics. And did I see, I saw in your piece in the Irish Times yesterday, there was concern about the tabloids as well, is that right? Uh, well, there was always concern about the tabloids and how they might show something. But I, I think in, in a way, the, there's not much you can do about the tabloids. You know, they will, they will be tabloidy, if that's the right word. And not a lot one can do about it because it will be reduced to, to uh, a, a, simple, a simple headline. But when Charles Hockey then was asked uh, about the Birmingham Six, um, and as I say, he had been under pressure from 
not least the Birmingham Six themselves, writing directly to the Taoiseach. Uh, Tommy Gorman asked him about whether there'd been disagreement between himself and Thatcher when he'd raised it at the EU the marginal meeting at the summit. No, I didn't say we disagreed, but we, uh, we exchanged views. Uh, and so far as uh, we're concerned, we have a very definite view about the Birmingham Six, uh, which we state both publicly and privately, uh, namely that the outcome of the Guildford Four uh, case makes a case for a review, a reopening uh, of the Birmingham Six case almost unanswerable. We, we didn't disagree, but we exchanged views. That's a great hoyism, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, is there anything in the archive that reveals early signs of, of I, I guess you mentioned about, about Thatcher's view of German reunification, early signs of how Thatcher and Britain were viewing Europe at that point in the Euroscepticism that would come back to bite us all? Well, I suppose there are, but they were, they were always there when Thatcher was talking about Europe. You know, we famously, she wanted her money back and all of that. And Nicholas Fenn, who was the British ambassador in Dublin, he made efforts before the Madrid summit, which was in the summer of that year, to get um, the Irish on side. If uh, he, he used the phrase that, it, it, that Thatcher felt a mite lonesome as she was making her views on Europe and the direction in which it was going. And then she, he said also that there was the social charter was seen by the British as codswallop. Um, when Thatcher herself uh, was talking to Ho, he, he, she complained about the airy-fairy talk about European Monetary Union. And of course, the British didn't join the European Monetary Union. Um, but there's that tone all the time. Charlie tries to Kind of now, one is depending on the notes. In my case, the Irish notes by Dermot Nally of these exchanges. Okay, they're yeah. not verbatim accounts, and mm-hmm. some things can be can be lost. There's never anything added, I would say. But the tone and the note you will you will generally pick up. These would not be absolutely direct quotes, but it does show that she was with Hockey as with so many others, not afraid to sort of say what she thought about the direction of Europe. Um, now, when Hockey was asked this about, uh, again by Tommy Gorman in an RTE This Week interview, about Thatcher's known antipathy to many of the EU's policies. The British Prime Minister and the British delegation uh, have uh, their own view about certain developments in the community. They're opposed to certain things. Uh, They make that opposition clear. Uh, They put their case clearly to the community. But then when the decision is taken, that's the end of the matter. So there are the seeds of so many things there, aren't there? You can hear in both of them. Yes, you you can, but, but there's no. But also you you hear in in Charles Howe there. He say, he's really determined to say nothing. Yeah, you know, except that it's all it's and he's not. Nor is he te- really telling the truth because Maggie stayed on message and remained difficult uh, within all of those EU summits and didn't hide that view to anybody. You said at the beginning there that Margaret Thatcher, I, I don't know how you put it, didn't really know uh, much about Northern Ireland. or, or had, Did she have a clear policy on Northern Ireland overall and where she stood on it? Uh, well, I, I don't believe she, she did. Uh, first of all, she knew very little about it when she became Tory leader. And what she did know was kind of taught to her by Airy Neve, who was her Northern Ireland spokes, spokesperson. He was later... Uh, assassinated in the coming out of the car park in the uh, House of Commons, as we know. Um, and Ian Gow would have been another advisor. And he was uh, killed in his own the front drive of his own car in, in uh, by the provisional IRA uh, at the end of her time. 
or about the end of her time in office. But she had no fixed policy on Northern Ireland. Uh, and in my view, she was unreadable. I mean, she went, she, she, was, she was kind of all over the place. She, she said that Northern Ireland was as British as Finchley. She often said that the border should have been further drawn further north. Now, by often I'm saying, including private conversations mm-hmm. that she had with people. Um, and she asked J- James Pryor at one stage whether he believed the British should uh, adopt a tactical withdrawal from Northern Ireland. So over the period, she is really unreadable. She had no fixed view. Her, the chapter covering Northern Ireland in her own memoir was written by Charles Powell, ghosted by him for her, and she signed off on it. And it is very shallow. It's myopic. It's very Thatcher-centred. Um, she dismisses the Hillsborough Agreement, the Anglo-Irish Agreement that she signed with Gareth Fitzgerald, which w- probably was by by kind of by British historians would be seen by and by those who helped to get her over the line on it would be seen as her best greatest achievement. But it wasn't seen, of course, by the Ulster Unionists in that way. They saw it as Ireland p- South putting a toe in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't like that at all. But it has changed the relationship. And, and how it came about, in my view, was just by the British deciding that they could not deliver a policy within Northern Ireland based on the dynamics within the North, that they needed the wider framework, that geography mattered. Geography matters again with Brexit. That's the problem with Brexit, mm-hmm. is that it now having... The Hillsborough Agreement was... <clears throat> A, a terrific political achievement by the Irish diplomats and the British uh, diplomats who got it over the line. And it changed all the relationships between all the parties. And But in my view, anyway, it changed them for the better because it made them more realistic. Um, Thatcher did not believe that and came to believe that it had been a mistake of hers to do it. Now, if you read, as opposed to her memoir, if you read Charles Moore's absolutely marvellous Absolutely, one of the best political biographies uh, published in the last century, I would say. Three-volume biography yeah. of Thatcher. He is absolutely on the money about her Northern Ireland policy and understands, and has his sources too. I mean, I know the Irish sources very well. He had 20 subjects of Tha- about Thatcher to research. I was hugely impressed by his sources on, the, on her Irish policy. Um, but he has a much more sophisticated view of all of that than she has in her own memoir. Okay. okay. Uh, John Bowman, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for doing that for us. And we'll take a break. Podcast, The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.